0: Today we're going to be spending our third week in our series, Seeing Clearly, going through the Gospel of John. And today's sermon is entitled Five Faithful Followers. We'll be looking at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. It's actually a, a interesting text, as I trust they all are, but this is interesting in the sense of it is the first time in the Gospel of John we see Jesus interacting directly with people. If you'll remember, two weeks ago we looked at Uh, John 1 verse 1 through 18 and we looked at uh, Jesus' resume, who he was. In the beginning was a word and the word was God and the word was with God. We saw uh, a bit about who he was, what he did, what his credentials were. Last week we looked at the Lamb of God. We saw that the Lamb of God was not a clever marketing campaign initiated by John the Baptist whereby uh, Christian retailers could sell fuzzy lambs throughout the year, especially at the Easter season, but it was a title that went back to the Old Testament, and we looked a little bit uh, more deeply into that title. And today we're going to look at Jesus interact- interacting with uh, five people, and we're going to see what we could learn from these five people. And rather than beginning with an illustration, I'm going to get right into the text, because what you're going to have today are basically five sermons uh, in one or oh, I should say four sermons in one. And one of the hardest things for uh, me as I go through this, and I assume for many pastors, is how to preach through a book with this much substance in it. And I thought rather than doing this over a month, this section, I would do it together and tie it in at the end. So we'll just um, expectantly anticipate that will happen as we conclude today. Rather than reading the, the whole text at once, I'm going to take it in parts. And we'll tie them together at the end. And the first part we're going to be looking at starts in John chapter 1, and it goes from verse 35 through verse 40. And we read, The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So one of these two who followed uh, Jesus, we're just told there was Andrew, and we can be uh, quite certain that the other one was John, the author of this gospel. And if you slow down and look a little bit more closely at this text, it's kind of creepy. See, you had John and Andrew following John the Baptist, who was their rabbi or their teacher. And This is the second reference to uh, John the Baptist calling Jesus the Lamb of God. And at this point, as he pointed out the Lamb of God, John and Andrew began to follow Jesus. And if you look closely, it says, um, during verse 37, they, they followed Jesus, and Jesus turned and saw them following him, and said, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi where are you staying? And I, I just think, what would happen if that happened today? If if someone's walking around, and you start to follow them, and they turn and say, w- what are you seeking? What are you doing? And you say to them, where are you staying? Uh, I envision you may be sprayed with mace or have the police called. I think they call that stalking, no? So we're John and Andrew stalkers? I guess that's the first question we need to answer. Were they creepy guys following Jesus? And fortunately the answer is no, but I think to understand why they're not, we need to understand this passage in context. Jesus was a rabbi, he was a teacher. And the way teachers worked back then was they had people who physically followed them as they moved around and taught. They didn't sit in classrooms in universities or colleges. They moved by foot and their students followed them. So these guys began following Jesus, Andrew and John, because they wanted to learn from him. And he saw them following them and said, what are you seeking? What do you want? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? Because they wanted to know physically where he would be present. So they could come to him and and learn from him and be his students and, and call him as they did here, Rabbi. And Jesus interestingly turns to them and says, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. That is an incredibly significant thing. Jesus invited them to his place to stay with him, to eat with him. And in that culture, in that culture even today, the idea of being invited into one's place, into into one's home, to, to eat with them, to spend time with them, is an incredibly significant gesture. It's a gesture of extreme friendship. It is something you do only to those who you really want to get to know and to spend time with. You and I live in a culture where we eat with anybody. If they want to buy you a meal, you'll, you'll pretty much eat with anyone you can find. But but we tend to socially get to know people through food. And just it's an activity we do. If you're going to spend time with friends in the evening, you typically go out to dinner. If you're meeting a friend, you typically meet over food. And we have lots of different people even into our homes. But in this culture especially, and in this time in particular, this was an extreme gesture. And Jesus was saying to them not just, well, you can follow me around and learn from me. He was saying, I want you to become my friends. I want you to get to know me intimately and deeply. I want you to spend time with me, and I invite you to come and dine with me, to eat with me, to spend the day with me. A couple things there. First of all, Jesus does the same for us. He invites us to spend time with him. Jesus is a real person who we can get to know, who we can build a personal relationship with, as Andrew and John did. He invites us to spend time with him, and it's a very interesting little thing when you think about it. Actually, it's an interesting grand thing. Are any of you busy people? Do any of you have a lot to do during the day? Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the tasks you must accomplish? Do you feel busier than God? Remember, Jesus is God in the flesh. And could you imagine if Jesus had a PR guy following him around, and Jesus sees these two following him and says, what are you seeking in the answer? And all of a sudden Jesus' PR guy grabs his arm and says, Hey, hey, Jesus, listen, we got a lot to do. You got some miracles to perform. We gotta get you ready for the Gethsemane Garden prayer thing. We gotta get you ready for your death, burial, resurrection, and all that. You got healings to do, demons to move out, people to teach, places to go, temples to cleanse. You're a busy man. We got three years to pull this off. We don't have time to spend with these two two John the Baptist lovers. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus takes the rest of the day to spend time and get to know two guys, or I should say, to let two guys get to know him. Sometimes we think God doesn't have time for us. Sometimes we wonder if God hears our prayers or if he's too busy. Sometimes we don't think that God is overly concerned with a little event in our life. Maybe we we have a a difficulty sleeping We have a child who keeps us up. Maybe we have trouble at work. Maybe we're having trouble finding work. Maybe we have a, a rowdy neighbor, whatever the problem is. Perhaps we can think it's too insignificant for God to spend time on because He has other things like earthquakes and uh, famines and revolutions and more drastic things. Well, folks, if if you think that way, you don't know God. Because God is never overwhelmed. God is never too busy. God is everywhere all at once, all-knowing and all-powerful. God doesn't have a to-do list. God has a to-done list. God is never too busy to spend time with us. He desires for us to spend time with Him, in fact, In fact, that brings him great joy. And we see that in how Jesus interacts with these two men. There's a little passage in here I don't want you to miss. We're going to spend some time on it in a couple weeks. But it says, it's when Jesus says, what are you seeking? In other words, what do you want? I think it's an important question for us all to be able to answer. When Jesus looks to us and says, what do you want? Or what are you seeking? Are we seeking stuff from him or a relationship with him? It's an important question to be able to answer, and we're going to look at that in a few weeks. But Andrew and John spend some time with Jesus. And look what happens in verse 41. This is The first thing I want you to get out of Jesus is that Jesus wants to spend time with us to build a relationship. And now we roll into the second thing. As soon as they leave, they run back to John the Baptist, right? No. They get back to their work? No. No. In verse 41, we see he, being Andrew, found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. We'll talk in a minute about why Andrew ran to get his brother, but there are certain events in history where I would love to be physically present, and this is actually one of them. I would love to see the look on Peter's face and Jesus' face as they came together in this situation. I imagine Peter, stubborn, hard-willed, determined, feisty Peter. This is not Peter the the apostle. This is not the Peter who died upside down on the cross for Jesus. This is Peter the fisherman who was going to rebuke Jesus and deny Jesus and slash ears and, and, and have that fiery personality come out. Approaches Jesus, I imagine, a bit skeptically, perhaps with chest puffed up, letting the person know, listen, I ain't got time for you, buddy, and I got fish to catch. So get the heck out of my way if you're not who you claim to be. And I imagine what the look on his face must have been like. Probably a set, stony look. Staring at the man he was uh, being told was a Messiah. And I imagine the look on Jesus' face. Perhaps a a pursed grin. A a, a little smile as he he saw feisty Peter coming. Uh, And knowing who this Peter was and who this Peter would become. and, And Jesus looks at him and he says to him, So... You are, the, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. He calls him the Rock. Gives him a nickname. This man was no Rock at the time. He was stubborn, but not stoic. And the reason Jesus called him the Rock was not because he was the Rock, but because he would become the Rock. Because when Jesus looked at Peter, he saw Peter's full potential. He didn't necessarily stop at the... He didn't, period, stop. At the Peter who was, he went on to the Peter who would become. You see, there's the was versus the become version of all of us when we get to know Jesus. Who we are today will be radically different, radically changed from who we will become as we spend time with Jesus and let him shape us. As Peter knew Jesus more intimately, as he lived a life of obedience more fully, he became the rock. Jesus knew this because Jesus saw with him his full potential. Often we limit ourselves by what we see as our potential rather than trusting God to use us for what he knows to be our true potential that he desires to develop within us. One of the little things I always have a um, a hard time with are resumes, especially in the context of of, uh, church circles. I've been involved in and a part of uh, many pastoral search um, processes and and I always have a hard time with resumes coming in on those. Why? Because I understand why they're needed. But it just seems a little bit off. If you're going to look for someone who has a resume that tells you their abilities, versus seeing a person's potential as God would see them. Imagine if, if uh, Jesus told some people to go ahead and do a search for 12 disciples. Call in the resumes, look for the experience, and pick them out for them. Folks, I know Peter wouldn't have been selected. In fact, I know that if you vet him well, Judas wouldn't have been selected, and I can be quite sure the other ten wouldn't. Perhaps if the church was doing a, I should say the temple, the Jews, were doing a search for the Messiah, they'd call for resumes. And it's quite clear Jesus' resume didn't foot the bill. I think what we need to be careful of is this, folks. We need to not live off a worldly resume mindset. Yes, hopefully God has used us powerfully in the past, but he will use us incredibly more powerfully in the future as we trust him in ways we can never expect. And you and I need to be encouraged by that. Maybe you feel you're quite average, but you wouldn't voice that out loud. Maybe, in fact, you feel a bit below average. Maybe you feel you're never going to do something substantial to change the world. Well, folks, God can use you mightily. In fact, God will use you mightily often in the monotony of the day-to-day tasks, to do something incredible. Not through your power, but through His. Not through your expectations, but through His. Not through your abilities. I'm sorry, not through your um, potential that you see, but the potential He sees in you. So Jesus desires to spend time with us. Jesus sees our full potential. And then in verse 43 and 44, we see something else. We see the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida in the city of Andrew and Peter. Isn't that a phenomenal situation? Jesus says, Philip, follow me. And Philip follows him. Wow, what a movie that would make. Take about four seconds. Actually, it's an amazingly um, powerful thing when we look at it a little more deeply. You see, Jesus didn't walk by and see Philip and say, Philip, I can use you, but I need you to read the Bible. I need you to go clean up. I need a better beard on you and better clothes. I need you to have a better uh, relational circle. Make some more friends. I need you to raise some funds so that you can be freed up to follow me. And when you do all this, call me, Philip, and you can follow me. It's not what Jesus says. He says, come. You see, Jesus says the same thing to us. Come, follow me. He will use us wherever we are, but, but often we say, well, Jesus, I'm not quite ready. You see, Jesus, I can't obey what you say because I'm not prepared. I know you say, go and tell people about you, but I don't know anything. I, I can't respond to their arguments. I know you say that, that we should read the Bible, but, but it doesn't make sense. I, I'm not ready to. God, I want you to use me mightily, but, but I'm just not in a position financially to do that yet. I can't free up my time. I can't use my finances as you desire because I have other stuff going on. Well, folks, here's what you need to learn. You will never be ready for service if you depend on your abilities. You'll always be ready for service if you depend on His and obey Him. If I was going to wait till I felt ready to be a pastor, I would never be a pastor. I don't say this in any, anything other than complete truth, but I, most weeks, in fact every week, feel quite ill-equipped to be a pastor, especially to preach on Sundays. I'm trying to tell you what God says in His Word. And I am concerned every time I do this that I might misspeak. I would like to have about 70 more years under my belt before a word utters out of my mouth claiming to be um, what God would say, what God would have us do. But I also believe in this, in this uh, humility of inadequacy that I have to lean fully on God. And I know that as I do that, He can and will use me mightily. And the same is true for all of us. It's when we feel puffed up in ourselves that things get dangerous. It's when we lean on ourselves and we look to our own abilities that things get dangerous. And quite frankly, if we wait until we're ready to serve God, we're never going to be serving him faithfully through his power. And we're never going to feel ready, quite frankly. So as Jesus calls Philip and Philip follows him, we need to realize that God doesn't call us to clean up, get fixed up, and then follow him. He calls us to follow him so he can clean us up and fix us up and prepare him as we grow to love him and as a result of that love come to obey him. Notice also that Philip saw two guys with Jesus that he knew. It says Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And as a little aside, I think you should realize this. As people see us walking with Jesus, it helps them come to follow him at times. As people see us following Jesus and we have credibility, they say, you know what, I know that guy. I trust that guy. That's a true guy. I think I'll take a look at Jesus. We'll go far more deeply into that as we go further on through this gospel. But don't miss that. And now we get to perhaps to my favorite part of this section, verse 45 to 51. And I'll explain in a minute why it's my favorite. But Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also in the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, "Ha! Huh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on, the Son of Man. Why do I love this section, folks? Because Nathaniel and I have a lot in common. Or hopefully I can say, the Nathaniel of this passage and the me of old had a lot in common. Nathaniel was one skeptical dude. And folks, that was my profession of many years. My expertise was in the field of skepticism. But God was gracious enough to to open my eyes because he knew my heart as he knew Nathaniel's heart. Let me ask you a question. Why was Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree? Perhaps he was a lazy man. Could you see him eating a pomegranate with his head back on a, a cozy something, cozy rock? Sitting in the shade going, man, it's hot in this desert environment. Whew. Thank goodness for pomegranates in shade. I'm not working today. I'm just whistling away in the shade of the fig tree. And you know, Nathaniel had a big gut, and he just kind of sat there and watched people walking by and and just did a whole lot of nothing. I don't think that was Nathaniel. In fact, I know that wasn't Nathaniel. There's this book out there called The Talmud. I'm sure you guys have all read it. You got it on your shelf, right? The Talmud, it's got to be on the New York Times bestseller list. Well, actually, I'm joking. It's not on the bestseller list. In fact, I wouldn't recommend it. You can read it, but it's not what you should spend too much time with. The Talmud's a collection of rabbinical writings on practical living. It's basically a commentary of rabbis on how to live a life of the law. And one of the things the Talmud did was encourage men to spend some time each day under a large shade tree reading and meditating on scripture. So when you look at what's going on here, Jesus calls Nathanael, an Israelite indeed, and in who there's no fault. And you see Nathanael's response to who Jesus is. He calls him, what does he call him, folks? The Son of God and the King of Israel, in verse 49. You put that together, you know we have an educated man in the Scriptures who is almost certainly sitting under the fig tree because the Talmud and the rabbis taught him to spend time each day there reading and meditating on Scripture. Wouldn't you love to know what he was reading? Hmm. Jesus sees him reading under the fig tree. So Jesus knew what he was reading. And remember, there's no coincidences with God. God is sovereign. So Jesus called him specifically at this time, knowing exactly what he would be reading. And and there's a significance in that. And while the Scripture doesn't tell us what it is, I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to speculate. So understand this caveat I'm putting in here. What I'm about to tell you is not in the Bible. Could very well be true. In fact, I think it might be true. But this is not an inspired observation. This is a gut of a pastor. I think that Nathaniel is reading Genesis chapter 28. Why do I think that? Well, look what Jesus says here at the end. He says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And if you go back to Genesis 28, and you go to verse 12, you read, And he... He is Jacob. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And could you imagine the look on Nathaniel's face? If that is a passage he was reading, when Jesus says to him, You know that passage you were reading? Guess who's here? The Son of God? Yeah. The King of Israel? You bet. But that ladder you read about? Here I stand, and Jesus says to him, You'll see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending, on not a ladder, but he says, the Son of Man. Could you imagine the dust of that jaw drop? As Jesus revealed to Nathanael who he was. Why did he reveal who he was to Nathanael? Nathanael said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael doubted. He was skeptical, but Jesus didn't stop at the exterior. He knew what was in the heart, and he knew in the heart was a man who was seeking after the truth of God, albeit in a messed up, fallen way, distorted by sin, but yet a man who truly wanted to know. And if you truly want to know who God is, if you truly want to develop a relationship with him, he will do that. Not just for Nathaniel, but for all of us. The question we need to ask is will you let him tell you what is in your heart? He knows our heart far better than we do and we need him to tell us what our heart is. How our heart needs to change. What needs to be revealed, removed and replaced in our heart. Jesus, folks, wants to spend time with us. He wants us to eat with him to get to know him better. It's one of the reasons we take communion. There's incredible significance in that that we're eating with and of. Jesus sees our full potential. Jesus calls us from wherever we are, and Jesus knows our heart. Now let me try to wrap this up together. Ready for this, folks? Jesus will amaze us as we get to know him more fully, and we will be unable to not tell others about him. Anyone know how Peter died? I mentioned it a bit ago, but he was crucified upside down on a cross. He faced trials We couldn't fathom, perhaps. He lived a life completely for Christ. And we might say, how could someone do that? How could you die upside down on a cross for Jesus? How could you do these amazing things? How could you preach the the things you did as we read through the books of Acts? And I know if you asked Peter this question, he'd look at you quizzically and say, what do you mean, how could I? How could I not? Philip, John, Andrew, Nathaniel, same thing. When you look at the lives of these men, you'd be amazed. And you could say, how could you do such things? And they would say, how could I not? And the same would be for any, true for any person who knew Jesus. And you know why? Because, folks, they were so amazed by him. It put stu- everything in such perfect perspective that it wasn't a question of how could they do it, but rather how could they not? Years ago, I was listening to the radio in my first year of seminary, and a man named Alistair Beg, one of my favorite uh, preachers to listen to on the radio, because he has the most beautiful accent, and he's a phenomenal uh, preacher of God's Word and teacher. But he has a Scottish accent, and and Alistair and I won't do the accent, I can't. But he said, if you're not sharing your faith, you don't have a faith to share. And I was so bothered by this, because folks, I was a Christian. I knew Jesus, I loved Jesus, I had turned my life over to him, and my life was being changed radically. But I wasn't sharing my faith with everyone. In fact, hardly anyone. And it bothered me. How could he say such a thing? And that has stuck in my head for many, many years. And God has used it mightily. And I remember my uh, third year of seminary took an evangelism class. And one of the things you had to do, the half your grade, was you had to go out and tell ten people about Jesus. And I put this off as long as I could, just like most students there, because it was just so uncomfortable to me. And I remember the first day, you go out with a, a mentor in the class. And they would watch you. And I remember sitting in a coffee shop, and you have to you see a, a really you have to do it well. what you do is you wait so there 's no one who knows you there. You find a cleared out area of the place with one lone individual i guess it 's kind of like a, how a lion pounces on prey and then when they 're sitting all alone and you 're done being uh, drenched with your sweat and you get your breathing and your pulse to a normal rate, you walk over and I remember walking up to this first person and and I could hardly breathe, and I was drenched, and, and I said in this beautifully eloquent presentation, um, um do, do you know who Jesus is? And the person looked at me and said, yeah, actually, I just graduated from Trinity, which is where I happened to be going to school. And I thought, oh, excellent, I got one done, and, and there was no, nobody shot at me, no one tried to kill me, no one laughed at me, and And I talked to this person out of great relief for probably 10 or 15 minutes. And I sat back down with the guy who was to come with me on these 10 things. And I said, all right, one, it's a Christian. He said, no, John, they have to be non-Christians. And I thought, oh, no. And I did this 10 times, and it was horrendous. But folks, I would almost like to take the class over again today. You know why? Because I understand what Alistair Begg was saying. and, And I don't think he said it perfectly. But I understand what he's saying. Our job isn't to drag people to Jesus. Our job isn't to uh, make someone love them. Our job isn't strictly to convince them of the truth. Simple fact of the matter is you can't make somebody a Christian, and that's really good news. But when you see Andrew runs out and tells his brother and Philip runs out and tells Nathaniel, and look at the examples as we go through the Bible of people who can't help but telling people about Jesus, you'll see the reason is because they loved Jesus and they had been amazed by him and they couldn't help but tell people about Jesus. Jesus says to us, if you love me, you will what? Obey me. He doesn't say, obey me to show me you love me. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And one of the things we do if we're to obey him is to tell people about him. So we tell people about him because we love him more. And as we love him more, and we love him as we spend time with him and get to know him. And the more we do that, the more we will be amazed by him. And we will be unable to not tell people about Jesus. Now don't misunderstand something I just said. I did not say that we do not have to be prepared to tell people about Jesus and respond to their questions and their arguments against. In fact, in First Peter, I remember a passage that says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. We need to be able to respond to the doubters. We need to be able to give an answer for the hope to the questions that people ask. If someone says to us, how do you know the Bible is the word of God? The correct answer is not because I saw it on the church website. You see, there are many people who ask questions to reinforce their disbelief, and I think, what if Christians loved Jesus enough to obey Him and allow Him to prepare them so they could respond to that question, and the doubters would know that their doubt was baseless? But yet there are many others who have serious questions. I want to know God. I want to know if I could know if He's really real. Is the Bible really the Word of God? And folks, we need to have an answer for that question because Jesus calls us to be prepared for it. And as we love Him and are amazed by Him, we will desire nothing greater than to obey Him. And part of that obedience is time spent in His Word. Time spent in prayer and meditation in which we are to be made ready. Stop and think of this. Look at what God did through these five faithful followers. Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel. Here's a little thing that will blow your mind if you think about it. Every one of us who loves Jesus could go back in time and trace the lineage of our coming to faith through these five guys. God used these five guys to build the church through his power. What could he do with us, with our church, with us as individuals? I leave you with this question. Do you want to find out? Do you want to live a life of mediocrity? Do you want to look at your own expectations? Do you want to spend time with everybody but Jesus? Or do you want to be like these five guys and be amazed and get to know who Jesus really is and see what he can do through you and through us as a church? Here's how you do it if you want to. First one is come and eat with him. How do you do it? How do you begin to build this relationship with Jesus? Not just knowing him, knowing about him, but knowing him. You do what he calls us to. You read the Bible. You meditate on the Bible. You try to memorize his word. You be a part of a Bible-based fellowship where you can be mutually encouraged and encouraging, where you could help be guided through life. You live a life of obedience based on love. And you see God amaze you. You believe that Jesus sees the incredible potential in you, not what you think you can do, but what he knows you will do if you trust and love him. I would love to know what Jesus' nickname is for me. Maybe I don't want to know. But I know it's a nickname that talks about how much more powerfully he can and will use me the more fully I trust in him and the same is true for you. Believe Jesus knows what's in your heart. Don't deceive yourselves to think you know yourselves all that well. Let Jesus convict us of what's in our heart. Let him care for us and shape us and guide us because his desire is to prosper us and to use us mightily. So folks, what's it going to be? Will you let Jesus amaze you? Will you add your name to the roster of these five faithful followers? Will you allow yourself to be amazed by him, to spend time with him, to be used by him, and look back one day and people say to you, How did you do it? How did you live that way? How could you turn your whole life over to Christ and you could look at them and say, How could I not? I have been amazed time and time again by this man named Jesus who I have gotten to know so personally that he genuinely is my best friend and also Lord and Savior. Folks, that's an amazing thing. We're one chapter into the Gospel of John. we got about 20 to go. And I truly am convinced that as we go through this, if we are open to God, to listening to God, to trusting God, to obeying God, to loving God, that he will amaze us as we go through this book and in the years ahead and use us in ways we cannot even imagine if only we will let him and trust him and love him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these five faithful men. I thank you for the fact that you love us, that you forgive us through Jesus' blood, that you sent Jesus to us. Jesus, I thank you for the fact that, that you became a person, that you became one of us, that you are a historical, living, breathing individual who we can come to know personally, that you want to spend time with us, that you know us, That you will care for us. Why? That's a good question. That blows our minds. We know only that it is because you love us. And while we were still sinners, you came and died for us. And God, I just pray you would work in our hearts deliberately to help us to turn our lives more fully over to you. So you would use us as you desire. So you would develop the potential within us that you desire to develop. So that you would amaze us and have your light shine through us, and we will be so focused on you that we will be disgusted by anything other than obedience to you. That we would realize the obedience to you is not burdensome, but it's a blessing because you desire to prosper us, and use us mightily, and give us life to the fullest, abundant life, and joyful life, and eternal life. God, I pray you would reveal yourself to us more fully. I pray it in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.